Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey folks, don't forget that Jim and I are doing a live event in Walt Disney World. The dates are November 10th through the 13th, and we have more information available at our travel partner's website, storybookdestinations.com slash Disney Dish. We've got all kinds of fun things digital from walks through Pandora to drinks at Coronado Springs, where we'll be overlooking the gorgeous landscaping and construction progress that's going on there. Plenty of time with me and Jim, plenty of time in Walt Disney World. Again, take a look at our travel partner's website, storybookdestinations.com slash Disney Dish for more detail. And now on with the show. Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Lynn Testa. And this is our first show for June 2017. In order to do our show, we need to bring in the man that The Rock uses as his body double at Baywatch. One, Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? To be fair here, I stand very far away, like <laughs> another continent, but it's a good gig. So, so Jim, speaking of beach-related activities, you recently got to go to the Volcano Bay press event. Now, Jim, before the show, I had asked you if Tapu Tapu is Samoan for technology show. <laughs> Thank you, Aaron, for editing that out. <laughs> yes, I have heard the stories from the opening weekend. It seemed to have been issues on opening weekend. I have to tell you... The Titanic that, had a better launch, Jim. Well, but, but here's the thing. My experience and our limited use of it, I mean, we would just use it to check in at a ride or, right. for example, when we both had a locker that we were sharing, that we had this nice universal employee who showed us how we could link our two things and be able to get in and out of the locker. So I don't feel like I can speak authoritatively about it. As we were leaving the park, no less than three Universal employees. They were charming, they were sweet, but they wanted their Tapu Tapu back. Oh, yeah. But what have you heard? What exactly happened? We heard the problem started on the official opening day on the 27th, and okay. there were reports on social media of, of two things. The big problem was that the virtual queuing thing mm. that Tapu Tapu was supposed to do didn't actually result in a virtual queuing. What I heard was you got your return time, to return to the ride. And once you did that, you still had waits of 30 minutes or more. Yikes. To wait in the actual line, which begs the question, what you know, what am I actually avoiding by doing this? Mm -hmm. You heard lots of instances where the bands just simply didn't work as well. Also, I heard there were breakdowns on many of the three of the four rides, the slides themselves, mm -hmm. uh, were broken down at various points. And some of the lines extended to, you know, two, three hours or more. Wow. That's not what Nancy and I experienced. I mean, I guess I should preface this by saying the night before, we're up in one of the new towers at Cabana Bay. They took us up for a tour to show us the new two-room family suites, the ones that are dead center in the tower and have the amazing view of Volcano Bay. Oh, and yeah, yeah. 
Nancy and I actually made it on the Krakatoa, I don't know how to pronounce his name, the water coaster. Oh, you went on it? Uh, yeah, and the weird thing of it is, is I thought nothing of it. It was a, f- a fun attraction. I mean, you know, particularly when you're going uphill and this is a magnet driven, you know, when you're powered up the hill, that thing really zips along. And when you're going through the heart of the mountain and you look up and there's this multicolored spaghetti, which you realize is all of the tubes for the various different rides that go through it, it, it was amazing looking. But we, as it turned out, were among the only few people who got to ride it that day because they had issues. I mean, in fact, I was, was talking with our friend Seth Kapersky later on, and he, he didn't manage to make it onto it. And in fact, a lot of the other members of the press that day didn't get to do it. They have a, a slow-moving lazy river and a fast-moving lazy river. And the slow-moving lazy river in the three hours plus that we were in the park, they never let anybody into. But the fast-moving, midway through a day, we look, and there's, like, one guy in a tube riding through it and turned the attendant, is is this open now? And it's like, yes. Bob, he's so, Bobby the intern. Yeah. <laughs> it, so it's like, sure. So we, we grab tubes and life jackets and, and get in the thing. And for all the talk of it being a rolling rapids, that sort of thing, I mean, it, it wasn't anything that we couldn't handle. But again, same thing. When you went through... The mountain, this was not the slow-moving side, so we didn't get the glowworm cave or that sort of thing, but you were impressed by the the design, the look of the thing, the engineering of it. Mm-hmm. But it was hard not to overlook the fact that, you know, for example, they were painters, they were horticulture people. They still just on, Still on the mountain, painting the mountain? Yeah, and there were the usual hiccups that you have when you open a, a theme park. Nancy and I went to the Waka Waiwaiwaiwa Eats, and they do what they call longboard pizzas there. She got a, a veggie pizza. Arrived, it was huge and it was very tasty. I, on the other hand, got a Cobb salad that seemed to have been left over from the Eisenhower administration. Made by Mr. Cobb himself. Yeah, <laughs> right. The last one before he passed away back in the 50s. So, food wise, there was good, there was bad. We went to the Dancing Dragons boat bar, which had mm-hmm. a great view of the wave pool and got a, a terrific rum drink there with watermelon and raspberries and staff there was really attentive and helpful. Same thing with the the folks working the locker rooms. Look, Len, it's got good bones. The design of it is extraordinary. In fact, uh, we did the uh, Tawana tubes. When you're down at ground level and you're surrounded by these buildings with all this Polynesian design and Mm -hmm. you get up high for the launch of this tube thing, and you can look straight out on Turkey Lake Road, or you're aware of how close you are to I-4. And, and yeah. for me, that's like, that's half the thing of, of what impresses me about it is like, wow, when you're down in this, you don't really get the sense of that. Or that you're three quarters of a mile from a Whole Foods or something like that. Right? Yeah, I've always been intrigued by how Universal does that, how they take what little land they have and have crammed in as much. In fact, when you look across the way and the, you know, the Aventura is, is rising mm-hmm. up and will be ready for next summer. But, but I understand that when you pay close to $100 to get into a place, it's not enough to go into the store and like, well, look at the whimsical monkey sculpture. I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, you don't care about the damn monkeys, right? It's, yeah. uh, it's $67, right? They're pressing it comparable to Disney's theme parks. But still, mm-hmm. I, I heard day, day one and day two mm-hmm. that would they gave away quite a few refunds, and understandably so. If the park yeah. isn't ready, you, 
I want this to work. Yeah. And I'm knowing the folks at Universal, they'll figure it out. I just do legitimately feel bad for the folks who wanted to be the first here and wanted to try the amazing Tapu Tapu system. And I'm one of those guys who doesn't even like using magic bands. I've stopped wearing a watch years ago. Yeah, me too. Let me ask, this, so let me ask, ask two quick questions. One, mm. how long do you think it'll take Universal to get these issues ironed out. Are we talking about a couple of weeks? We're we talking about a month. I heard prior to opening that when they were doing the cast member testing, that when they had as few as 10% of the cast members in the test loaded into Tapu Tapu, the system crashed. So this could be a challenge to fix. I mean, this could be strictly a software issue or something relatively quick fix, but okay. it's hard to make these sorts of fixes when ten or 15,000 people are coming through the gate every day and you're yeah. still trying to give them a great guest experience. If you can't deliver on that no line, no wait, and it really doesn't matter that your raft is waiting for you at the top of the mountain that you didn't have to carry it if you still had to stand in that line. Yeah, I think some people would rather carry the raft than wait an hour in line. I heard that Universal stopped selling Universal Express for Volcano Bay because it wasn't working well with uh, with the Tapu Tapu stuff. They couldn't guarantee you no lines or whatever. I hadn't heard that, but given what I've been hearing about the opening weekend, I'm really not surprised. I have to tell you that talking with Universal people at this media event, there was a certain level of terror that this was going to be June 1990 all over again. That's what we've heard, that it's uh, it was more reminiscent of, uh, of opening day mm -hmm. than, uh, let's say, the opening of the Harry Potter stuff. Yeah, and that's frustrating for them because they've had such a good run for so long. So I would imagine they're throwing money at it right now, trying to fix it. I think what we should do is the next time you and I are both in Orlando, give them a couple mm -hmm. of weeks. Jimmy, you think people should avoid it for... A couple weeks? Um, geez, I, I, I don't know if of don't make it a priority. Well, the problem is that starting six or eight months ago, Universal began offering three park passes. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. a lot of vacation packages were built around park that. Sold, yeah. And I would hate for people having purchased that to, to avoid the park. I mean, there's some great restaurants over there, some, some fun bars, and you've got the wave pool. So even if you've already purchased the ticket, do go check it out. Just make sure you go in understanding that there are going to be operational hiccups. In the fine unofficial guide tradition, might be smart to go early or stay late. I mean, it, it's kind of like what just happened this past weekend with Pandora. The people who went first thing in the morning. I mean, a five-hour long line just to get into Pandora. A line that came out of the world of Avatar went down by the Tree of Life over the bridge and then doubled back on itself. Was that what you'd heard? Or? Yeah, switching over to the Animal Kingdom. Mm -hmm. On the 27th, the day that Pandora opened, the line to get into Pandora stretched all the way back to the entrance mm -hmm. into the Oasis and then started doubling back on itself. We had, uh, we had uh, you know, folks from the unofficial guide were there and some prints there as well. I don't think the wait to get in was over three hours. Disney had said it was five, mm -hmm. I think, just to manage expectations. So what they were doing was prioritizing entrance for guests with fast passes. Mm -hmm. Those people got in. So you exchanged your fast pass and you got into the land immediately. Okay. For everybody else, it was a waiting period of 
no more than three hours. I think by 11.30, everyone that I knew that was there had been in. I spoke to cast members. Some people had got to the Animal Kingdom as early as 2 or 2.30 in the morning. I heard that. I heard that. That's a bit much for a new land, but I say that having having once employed someone who sat in front of Star Tours for six weeks. I know, I remember that. I know, I know. So that's that's fine. So what was your impression of it? You got to see it at night, finally, right? Yes, yes. On the exact same day that we did press stuff at Universal, we went over to Disney, and initially there were some real concern because of, for the first time in months, Orlando got rain. And Disney was desperate to get folks into Pandora to see the nighttime lighting package. So they basically moved the nighttime party, which was supposed to be in Harambe Village, to the contemporary. We were all set up in the Fantasia Ballroom, and then they Wow, really? Wow. Yeah, 2,300 people in the Fantasia Ballroom. And then when they deemed that, okay, it looks like the weather's going to hold, suddenly this fleet of buses shows up. We all get driven over to Animal Kingdom, taken backstage, and again, we sort of hike through Harambe Village, and there we are in Pandora. And I have to say the nighttime lighting package is spectacular, but it's not... Broadway spectacular, as in, you know, this is muted colors that one would actually see in nature in a bioluminescent forest. I heard it's very subtle. Yeah. Yeah, which I have to say I'm a little concerned about where we'll be in, say, six months' time. Nancy almost brained herself at one point while walking through the land when it was so dark, she hit a piece of a rock outcropping that had been sculpted and nearly took a header. And I have to assume that a lot of people walking around Pandora, looking up at the floating mountains, aren't going to be paying attention to what their feet are doing. And in the dim and the dark of this muted forest that... I have to imagine that for safety reasons, they're going to have to bump light levels or... Yeah, there'll be cleat lights or something on the... Uh... Yeah, and that would be unfortunate. There's a lot of great, subtle work. Once you're in there and once your eyes get used to it, I was also kind of startled at, given the light levels, how the high-quality pictures we've got of the various flora and fauna and that sort of thing. I mean... I was talking with Mark Eads from the Orange County Register, who, remember, Mark's a former Imagineer. He was talking about how he was on the Navi River adventure, and they turned to go back into the station. His wife turned to him and said, that's it? Oh, jeez. And Flight of Passage, this time, I was seated more to the center of the attraction. In fact, I don't know. I must have been dropped as a child. I did not connect with this ride, which is ironic because all they talk about is you're connected to your avatar. I mean, it's still beautiful. I'm still impressed, but I'm just, I didn't get caught up in it. And that really got driven home to me when I was out in California the very next day and rode on Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout, and that is honestly, I think, the best Disney ride I've been on in about five years. That's, that is amazing to hear. Mm-hmm. I have to admit, I was stunned myself, you know, given that it's, it's a redo of a beloved attraction. They have done such an amazing job out there. In fact, I got to speak with Joe Rohde, and what he basically was talking about was with Avatar... This was a six-year-long collaboration with James Cameron and the art directors and the effects people who'd all work mm-hmm. on Avatar. And it was, they were all very earnest and they were working very hard to create this all-encompassing experience. 
Joe made an interesting analogy how Walt used to talk about Disneyland in movie terms, how you had a long shot or a close-up. Joe was talking about today when people walk in who have gamed, that's the mindset they bring in. So when you're designing an attraction, you have to sort of think of, rather than a a frame, an image that's in front of you, you have to think of it as a dome. You have to tell story all around people. And in the case of Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout, it was only like 15 months ago that somebody decided, what if we were to take that side of the park and turn it into Marvel Land? What could we do with Tower of Terror? And it was fairly controversial at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's no getting around that. That was hugely controversial. Yeah. Tower of DCA, not a great attraction. But the idea was that it was, I guess, one of the one of the park's core attractions, that somehow it was you know, sacred. I've been on it exactly twice in all my trips to DCA because mm-hmm. I think uh, I think the Walt Disney World version is better. But uh, No, that's it exactly. Look, they spent over $100 million building the thing, so you can't say they built it on the cheap. But by cutting out the fifth dimension room and that moment where it transitioned, it did hurt the ride. What's amazing about what they've done with Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout is it's the same exact physical plant. You still have the lobby space. You still have the office space. You still have the basement industrial space. And, of course, you have your elevators. But now it's all in service of this Marvel-themed story. And in contrast to the six years long, very deliberate, collaborative process, They did all of this in 15 months. And to be honest, most of it was done in a year's time. But the folks at Marvel were not just happy, willing collaborators. They weren't trying to make art. They were trying to make something that was fun. James Gunn, the director of both Guardians, the original Guardians of the Galaxy in Volume 2, it turns out he's a huge Disney geek. In fact, at the opening, opening ceremony, he was telling this great story about how when he was four-year-old, he came to the park, he rode Peter Pan, he rode the Haunted Mansion, and it's like, look, you know, don't get me wrong, I love having a hit movie, but what I really wanted in life was a Disney theme park attraction. (laughs) And now I have one. He talked about how when they were shooting Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, and he learned about this project. He was like, oh, absolutely. He, they actually cut a day out of the schedule, an entire day, where it's like, we're going to do nothing but shoot the vignette. In fact, he said, I personally will direct the vignette with the cast. You know, wow. They, they had the set built for the breakout scene by the same art directors. Everybody from Chris Pratt on down was totally on board with this idea. So everybody committed. What you ended up with was this really more irreverent, exciting story that's got this killer soundtrack. I mean, you've got the six different drop profiles that are to classic 70s and 80s music to quickly walk you through the actual experience. I mean, you come into what used to be the lobby, and this is where you get to meet the collector, and they set up the story of how the Guardians have been captured by the collector and that he's now got them on display, but Rocket's going to find a way out. You now move into the collector's office, and this is where you get the backstory that you need for what happens next. No disrespect to the folks who programmed the Shaman of Song for Navi River Adventure, but the Rocket AA figure that you deal with in this room is the best AA figure I've ever seen in my life. Really? Just the way they introduce it. There's an air conditioning duct in the room where suddenly the door flaps open 
and you hear rocket fall through, and then you watch a raccoon tail move along the wall because he's he's scuttling into position, and then suddenly he rears up. And he, he proceeds to hit his head in the back of a pipe and then turns and addresses you in, in the movement, in the snout, and the gesturing. I mean, it, it's this ridiculously fluid, character-driven performance. And again, the differences between The Shaman, A Song, and Rocket is you actually know Rocket because you've seen the movies. And you like him, yeah. That's it, exactly. So they do one effect in one of the cases. It's a tag gag of this thing. I won't give away. But it's just sort of like, I still don't know how to do it. But anyway, you well, transi- transition now to the industrial space, the, the sort of old basement of the hotel thing. In here, you have things like Harold, the Yeti from the Matterhorn. You have one of the squids from the old 20,000 Leagues ride. You walk past one turn and you notice that there's a paint can tipped over, but there are little red raccoon footprints on on the ground. So you know Rocket's been through here and, he, and he's waiting for you on, on the gantry. It's so well done. When you're finally on board the elevator and you go up to that level from the Twilight Zone version of the attraction, where you're looking down the hallway and you Mm -hmm. saw the ghost and they did the rezzing effect. And this is where they have the generator in the building. This is the thing you rocket's supposed to take out so the Guardians can then be freed. It's It's such a brilliant use of space. It's such a great effect. And then from there, it's just... This amazing freefall thing where you, you stop for these 10 or 15 second long vignettes of this these crystal clear pieces of imagery with footage of the Guardians of the Galaxy characters, colossally funny bits that tie back to the movies. There's this wonderful random moment where you finally you reach the top of the shaft and you're looking out over DCA at Disneyland and Rocket's like, is that Disneyland? Wow, that's cool. And then you, you plummet back down the shaft. What they've done with Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout is so much better in that it's all keying off of story, and you must drop to this music five and six separate times. I guess the best way to make the comparison here is if you think of Tower of Terror as a nice, reliable family car of a ride, you know, a minivan, the Imagineers turned it into a hot rod with the stereo blasting and the tops down. This is so much more enjoyable to experience. I can't, honestly, I was actually talking with my daughter Alice, who took to the event along with me, who had as good a time, if not better, than I did. And we were already talking about how the next time out in California, we're going to DCA and we're going to try to get the other four drop profiles just to see nice. what happens. Yeah. And again, it's the exact same people who worked on Avatar, only the handcuffs were off. They weren't trying to make something beautiful. They were just trying to make something fun. And honestly, this is the most fun I've had on a Disney theme park ride in, in five years, land easily. That's, that's encouraging to hear. Mm-hmm. Good. And it fits, uh, it fits in the theme of the land in the park? This is the part of DCA that is, in fact, undergoing its, you know, for lack of a better term, marvelization. In fact, Joe explained the art direction to me that when you're looking at the outside of the tower building, and now again, it's the collector's fortress, a lot of people were kind of disturbed at the lines and the use of color and how stark it was and how different it was from tower. But Joe explained, it's like, look, we didn't just do the movies here. 
that's the line work that you see from a Marvel comic book from the 1960s. That's the way Jack Kirby drew. So those dark, stark line work or the straight lines or that sort of thing, that's straight out of classic Marvel comic books. So that's the thing. This land isn't just going to be about the Marvel movies or, for that matter, the Marvel TV show. So I have to admit, it was fun at the press party to, to have Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. wandering around. But they really they had Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Yeah, they had shield assault vehicles and people standing in the gray suits and sunglasses looking very severe. This is just them getting started. They're just getting warmed up, Len. What do you think is coming up after this? Well, first you have to sort of clean the canvas, which is why I guess it's time to tell people that if they really liked Monsters, Inc., Mike and Sully to the rescue, they really might want to write it sometime in the next year. It's not that popular attraction. I know, but it's. it looks like that's the chunk that's going down first along with the sort of Hollywood and Dine restaurant. And then from there, it gets interesting because you have to do all sorts of placemaking to take this modern Hollywood meets classic Hollywood. I mean, it just mm. they've never quite settled on what actually Hollywood land is. And now they have to change it into a, a pseudo Manhattan-y kind of feel to support the, you know, the Marvel aesthetic. That's supposedly the chunk that goes down first to make room for the Captain America coaster. And then from there, it does get complex, I think, on the reaction, the very strong reaction they've had so far for Guardians. Uh, we're going to see this thing turbocharged. Of course, I think they're going to wait to see what the numbers are and the reaction are till the tail end of summer. But sure. the Dis Disney people I've been talking with were hugely encouraged because they had been fretting that there had been so much pushback about the tower change. And to have people saying that I waited three hours in line to get on Guardians of Galaxy and it was totally worth it and I'm getting back in line now, that's what you want to hear. Especially when you're going to your board of directors and asking for an additional two or three hundred million dollars to create a land that will, in theory, wrap from where the Muppet vision and depending on which plan they go through, it wraps all the way around to Cars Land. Wow, that's one iteration of this land, uh, Len, that actually also eats bugs like. Uh, I was going to say, does, does Bugs Land survive? But that's uh... that's the the one aspect of this that, that they're getting some pushback on. The, you know, the belief is like this park needs kid stuff. Kids, kid stuff, exactly, exactly. There's been some talk of a trade-off. Part of the original plan for DCA was in the turnaround for California Screamin'. There was a spot created for uh, an Ursula-themed spinner that was supposed to be... Uh, oh, it would book in the... Um, King spinner. Triton Carousel. Yeah. But the, the notion is if that goes in, can we make a ride? I mean, it, that's the thing. You, you have to be able to replace rides with rides to yeah. not, not lose capacity. I'm also hearing stuff to the effect of Redwood Creek Challenge Trail might go south to create another ride-through attraction experience. It's kind of ironic that Shanghai Disneyland has that whole climbing challenge attraction where here stateside, they're very high up off the ground. Could we make that attraction go away? Because I don't want to get sued. It's a different culture. Yeah, the things that would be permitted in one place. But seriously, huh. Glenn, Glenn, you have to get out to California to ride this thing. There was a certain level of terror 
about if this was successful, would it come to Florida? I've been told repeatedly that the Twilight Zone that's at Disney Hollywood Studios is in a hands-off situation. Mm -hmm. Same thing with the Tower of Terror for Tokyo Disney Seas. However, Paris may get this attraction fast track for them. This version of the ride might be built in Florida, but over at Epcot. They would build a Tower of Terror at Epcot. They would build a Guardians of the Galaxy mission breakout at Epcot. At Epcot. They're looking for attractions that people actually want to get on. I, I know. I'm just saying that there are, there are three other parks in which that would fit. I, I, I don't know thematically how that fits into Future World. My understanding is the, the permits that have been filed for... For Universe uh, of Energy. For the area directly behind Universe behind of Energy. It. Oh, so you don't think it's for Universe of Energy? No, I think actually what's this may actually be what they're talking about. Rather keep University of Energy in place, but place a mission breakout actually out in that piece of forest that's on the edge of the Epcot parking lot. I think they're trying to take a nuanced approach this. They understand that this is, in fact, the Science and Discovery Park, and they may just have to shoehorn in all of these character-driven experiences and new things around the infrastructure and then just try to bring those other shows up, update them, and if possible, introduce characters in a natural way. But this may be the way they're going with that. Trust me, this ride in some form will make it to Florida, just not in the Tower of Terror at Disney Hollywood Studios. It's very interesting. We'll have to do an entire show on what's, what's happening at Epcot. I think is, we'll know more you know, within a year or so on that. But I mean, it's good to hear that they took a ride that a lot of people were skeptical about, yep. and they converted it into something that's good. And the fact that it's, you've got different ride profiles doesn't make it rewritable. That is also good. So, all right. I'm excited to try that. So I've got a, we've got a couple of things we have to try this summer, Jim, you and me together. This is true. And same thing. We'll just have to go back to Volcano Bay when they get a better handle on things and see if it actually works. All right. We'll have to do that. All right, folks. You've been listening to the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. We are produced by Aaron Adams. Please go into iTunes and Stitcher and rate our show. Also, you could write it in sand next to the beach that you're at this <laughs> summer. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show. Take care, folks.